Now, we are speaking, uh, working our way through the Bible. We're in 1 Thessalonians today. And it's a, it's a little bit, a wee book, but we've got a lot of work to do on this book. And then we'll catch 2 Thessalonians in two weeks' time. This was probably the first of Paul's letters. Sorry, but the Bible was not written in chronological order. In fact, even the things that were written weren't necessarily written in chronological order. For example, the Gospels. They were arranged to make a point, not necessarily a historical document as in he did this, then that. It was, that's why you can read one and say, well, wait a minute, I thought that happened earlier in this one. It did. They're not trying to write a biography. They're, they're telling you a story they need you to hear. By the way, uh, my wife and I went to see Risen on Friday. Uh, we highly recommend it. And there, there are people that said, was it true to Scripture? Almost entirely. Uh, it's, it's quite good. One person said, you know, they, 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 they keep it in the right order. And I said, Luke didn't keep it in the right order. Just relax. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good movie. You'll enjoy it. Uh, but with, with, let's get back to 1 Thessalonians, shall we? Before I get in more trouble. As if that could... Anyway, um, we're going to do this as if you're looking at a map. Paul is in Judah, but he needs to leave to do his mission work. Again, one of the first, uh, probably his first letter. Some say Galatians, but it's, it's pretty, pretty sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Thessalonians. Now he comes up, works through what we would today call Turkey. He would call Asia Minor and crosses the Bosphorus uh, Straits and enters Europe for the first time. He goes into Philippi and he stays there for, a, a, for two months. And during that time, he established the church there, but they also had a lot of problems. He was imprisoned. He was beaten freed from prison he left luke behind and he walked one he walked 100 miles west to the city of thessalonica now the city's name is not thessalonia it's thessalonica the, the people that live there are thessalonians so thessalonica he goes there think of that painful walk he's got to walk when he's just been beaten released he makes it to Thessalonica. It's a major city, about 200,000 people, major commerce point with a huge, well-established Jewish synagogue right there. It's a free city, which meant it was ruled by its own citizens according to the Greek model. So Paul settled right in. He was quite at home. He went to the synagogue daily. He preached, he taught, and he earned his living during that time by making tents. That was his backup. Everybody back then had a profession and a backup if you were in the higher classes. If you're in the lower classes, all you had was your backup. You're your carpenter, that's it. But in the upper ones, if you were, for example, a philosopher, they would expect you to also know something about something else so that you could make your living. Well, Paul also knew how to make tents, so he worked daily. Three weeks into this, some of the Jews there, and again, most Christians at the time were Jews. This is not an anti-Jewish statement. That we're talking about a portion, a small part of the Jews became very upset at Paul's message because they saw that by accepting Christ, it might mean they have to also accept the Gentiles. And they didn't like that. They liked being exclusive. They liked having their thing and doing church their way with their people like they'd always done it before. This was threatening. So they complained to the Roman authorities that Paul was a threat to Pax Romana, 
the peace of Rome. That was one of the biggest threats you could make because Rome didn't care if you were guilty or not. If you were disturbing the peace, they killed you because peace was what they were going for. Now, their version of peace, which meant absolute rule. And so whenever the Jews went to the, the Romans and said, these guys are causing trouble, they're, they're, they're disturbing the peace of Rome, it didn't really get too far. So then the Romans, uh, those Jews started riots to prove Paul was disturbing the peace. Doesn't make much sense to us, but that's the way politics often runs. They blamed Paul for the riots. So the city authorities called in several of the Christians, including a leader named Jason that we don't know much about. They questioned them, but they couldn't find that these guys did it, so they let them go. But they, the Christians let Paul know, you'd better get out of here. It's going to get worse. So Paul, once again, just after a little while there, a few weeks really, has to leave. But he and Silas and Timothy travel west to get for, for many days to get to Berea. Well, three days, that's not many days, but when you're, you've just done what Paul's done, that's many days, to Berea. They had a great ministry going in Berea for seven weeks until the Jewish people in Thessalonica heard about it and sent people in to disrupt it. Let's just a note here. It was believers in God who caused Paul all of his troubles for most of his ministry. And most of the New Testament was written by Paul. Well, he wrote more than any other. And most of it is dealing with believers who say, we believe in God, and because we believe in God, we've got to persecute you. It's not new, is it? It's not new at all. So what happens now? Paul was forced to go to Athens because Thessalonica actually sent a group in to Berea to cause trouble. So he gets to Athens. We leave Silas and Timothy behind. Now we keep traveling in. He goes to Athens. He speaks for a while. We all know a little bit about the uh, Paul on Mars Hill, and that was a brilliant thing, but he didn't make much of a splash in Athens, so he didn't stay there long. He moves on to Corinth. Now, three months or so after he left Thessalonica, he gets a report back. Timothy had gone back from Berea to check on them, see, all right, what's going on? How are they doing? Paul sits down to write this short letter once he gets the report. The people in Thessalonica, almost called it Thessalonia, had gladly received the word, and they were living up to their faith. Remember, he'd only been with them a few weeks. How much could he tell them? Well, it was evidently enough. They were doing well. And the sign, and this is so important, the sign that they were Christian was not a sign on a door. It was not a set of doctrines and right practices in worship and right practices in organization. Instead, the proof that they were Christians was the way they lived their lives. Look at this. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. 
Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. You're doing just fine. Wouldn't you love to get a letter from Paul like that? Saying, you know, you've only known about Jesus for three weeks, but you're already doing real fine. Just keep it going. That's important. You get the timeline down because there are ramifications to the timeline. That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the morning. You see, we have a history. Now, if you're not familiar with the Churches of Christ, please allow us a little historical digression. We have a history. Out in front of this building is a state historical marker. We didn't put it there, the state did, with a history of the founding of this congregation in 1833. One of the names on that marker is of a Scottish fellow named Alexander Campbell. Although born in Northern Ireland, that was a Scottish settlement at the time. Campbell and his father, Thomas Campbell, released a document in 1809, just 24 years before this church was established. And historians say that document, called the Declaration and Address, was the beginning of the American Restoration Movement, sometimes known to historians as the Stone Campbell Movement. There's a point to all of this. Parts 8 and 9 of that Declaration and Address say this, and we may hesitate and make some stops as we go through, that as it is not necessary, necessary, <laughs> necessary, that persons should have a particular knowledge or distinct apprehension of all divinely revealed truths in order to entitle them to a place in a church. Stop right there. It was assumed by the Campbells and by the people that started us that you don't have to have a big set of knowledge to be a Christian. Paul was in Thessalonica for about three weeks, and he had to work for a living. How much did they know? Nor should they, for this purpose, be required to make a, a profession more extensive than their knowledge. You don't have to say, well, I believe in this, 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 that, and the other, if you don't understand that. But having a due measure of scriptural self-knowledge, respecting their lost and perishing condition, and of the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, that's all that's necessary to qualify them for admission into his church. Did you get that? Just know that you're lost and that Jesus is the Savior and you're in the church. Now, some of you have a history with churches of Christ that are making you blink right now. Now, I love all those churches, and they did what they did, and they do what they do because they love the Lord, and we will not criticize them here. But I will tell you this. We started out like this. Just know you're lost and know Jesus as your Savior. It goes on that all that are enabled through grace to make such a profession that we're lost in Jesus as the Lord. And, the, and here's the biggie. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians. And to manifest the reality of it in their tempers and conduct should consider each other as the precious saints of God and should love each other as brethren. We are an open arms church. Welcome. You are home. We will not grill you. 
We will not drill, we will not drill you. We will not, we will not put you through a catechism and make sure that you agree with us about everything about instruments and the millennium and this, that, and the other. We're going to ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and do you act like it? Do you act like Jesus is in charge of your life? I have watched Christians, and, I, and yes, they are Christians. I will not say so-called Christians. I have seen Christians red in the face, spittle flying, yelling at each other over points of doctrine, and that comes from the devil, not from our Lord. We know we are Christians by our love one for the other. Paul reminds them that they, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, came to them and lived honorably, behaved honorably, never tried to cheat them, never tried to take anything from them. They earned their way. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, you might be saying, what an odd thing to say. I would suggest that you join one of our mission trips and go into the third world. In the third world, in many places, not all, in many places, you don't line up. You mob to get what you can get. In many places, cheating is part of the deal. Paying bribes is part of the deal. Just to get past a, a road stop, just to get your visa stamped, just you have to pay bribes, you have to, cheating, mob, all of that's part of the deal. You might say, well, then they should act more like us. Hold on. <laughs> we, we have our own problems. But the reason we behave differently is because the people that came to this country, most of them believed in a God that required us to behave a certain way. And that God requires us still to behave in a certain way. Paul then tells him he wanted to come back personally, but Satan prevented it. In chapter 2, verse 18, that might be a reference to the Jews that he said, that group of Jews that were hostile to everyone, he said, when we could stand it no longer, we sent Timothy back to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. He didn't say, I sent him back there to make sure you're caught up on all the doctrine. He said, no, I just want to make sure you remember how to behave when you're under trial. Well, we need to talk about what he meant when he said to strengthen you in that faith. Paul was only there a few weeks. Some people have stretched it out saying it could have been two months, but he worked hard night and day not to be a burden. So he was working. They didn't have eight-hour days back then. You worked from sunup to sundown. He worked. They had no New Testament. I hate to blow your bubble here. Those of you that think, well, the, the early church went by the New Testament. The early church didn't have it. The books weren't gathered for the first time till nearly 200 AD, and that was not a selection entirely that we have. It was not settled until after 400 years after Jesus Christ. There are ramifications for this. We gotta pay attention to this. And even that 200 year, the gathering of the books, that was one guy. That was Athanasius. That wasn't all the churches. They didn't have them. What did they have? They knew they were sinners and that Jesus was Lord, and they behaved like it. And that was enough for God to call them their children. Why, church, 
do churches fight? There's no need for that. We are all sinners. Jesus is Lord. Let's behave like it. That we understand this. That was that faith. Think about, if you're struggling with this, I want you to think about the Queen's treasurer. And most of you may be going, what's that? You probably know him as the Ethiopian eunuch. But he gets both titles in scripture, and I would assume he'd rather us know him as the queen's treasurer. <laughs> so, the queen's treasurer is reading the Bible and not getting it. God tells Philip, the preacher, go over there and talk to him. So he goes over there, and Philip goes, are you getting it? And he goes, I'm not, no. How do you understand this without somebody to explain it to you? And Philip said, well, it's all simple. If you're just an honest person, read and obey. No, he didn't. He started from there and took him to Jesus. And whenever the treasurer said, well, is there anything keeping me from being baptized? Philip goes, let's go. And if you believe that Jesus is Christ, that's it. And he does, and he's baptized. And he goes on his way rejoicing. Why was he rejoicing? No, don't skip ahead here don't don't miss it you might say well because he's a christian now now but what does he know when he gets to ethiopia which by the way wasn't modern day ethiopia probably closer to west over toward libya or the like but doesn't matter when he gets there people are going to say you're a christian yes well how do we start a church Well, we didn't have that much time. It was a desert. Um, well, just open up your holy books. We don't have those yet. Gonna, they're going to go write them. The guy that taught you? No, not him. Um, he and his daughters are preaching. Daughters? Yeah, we'll get to that later. Um, you see what I'm pointing at? If we confuse the ship with the barnacles, do you remember I said that last week? Our faith is a ship. Over time, barnacles attach. Those are little, little living creatures that form shells, and it, it kills the momentum of the ship. So every so often, you have to bring the ship into dry dock, where it's lifted out of the water, and they scrape the hull. Over the years, a lot of things have attached itself to our faith, which are not the ship of faith. We are sinners saved by grace. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we will behave like it. That is who Christ calls his people. That's who God wants us to be. By the way, when Timothy brought the report back, the last half of chapter 3, it was highly positive. Paul was thrilled. And then he reminds them that he left behind instructions on how to live. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. As, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you as to how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this and more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, I'd like to have those instructions. Well, they're in the book. He tells them, be set apart, sanctified. Don't act like the world. Be different. Avoid sexual immorality. It's hard to do. You might think it's getting harder, not harder than it was back then. It was worse then than anything here. And he said, avoid that. Control your own body, he tells them, in a way that is holy and honorable. 
Somebody can get angry at you. They can write letters against you. They can yell at you. You don't do that back. You control your body, not theirs. You control your response, not theirs. And then be marked by, and you knew this word was coming, be marked by love. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Wow. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. So that your daily life may win. So hang on. So that your argument, your debate, your brochure, your tracks, your... No. So your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anyone. He says, that's what Christianity looks like. By the way, after this, he did have to address one small problem. Some of them have understood Paul to teach that Jesus was coming back, and he is, but they thought that meant he's coming back right now, so they just quit their jobs and weren't working. He says, no, you have to work. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. You do need to fulfill your responsibilities to your society and to your family. And to yourself. Paul reminded them that the final return of Jesus was a reality they were com- that they could count on. Jesus was coming back, Paul says, and the dead would rise and we will be saved. However, <coughs> excuse me, there is a big however. They were to be ready to see Jesus at any moment by the way they lived their lives so they wouldn't be embarrassed when he walked in. The Dutch have a phrase to describe an awkward silence. And I used to know it in Dutch, but I don't know it anymore. But the phrase translated means, and a minister walked in. Because <laughs> if there's an awkward silence, you, you, it's kind of like you know, you're having a discussion, then the minister walks in. And then Second Opinions, Chapter 4, you know, it, it, don't let there be an awkward silence when Jesus walks in. Take a look at this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. That's why I tell you, pray for your shepherds. They are so, so wonderful. You are so blessed with your shepherds here. Pray for their wives. To acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Wow, that's what Christianity looks like. Live in peace, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I always love that because that assumes we're going to need to be patient. Always strive to do what is good for each other, for everyone else. Always rejoice, always pray, always give thanks. And he says, that'll separate you from the world. Because the world will walk around grumbling. We We deserve more. We're getting a bad deal. We walk around saying, I'm happy, I'm grateful, I'm thankful. Do not quench the Spirit. Listen to God. 
follow him as you go through your day because he is in your day. Pay attention. Welcome him. Listen to teaching, he says. And whatever's good in the teaching, I love that. He doesn't assume it's all good. He just says, you know, whatever's good in there, hold on to that. And then greet all of God's people with a holy kiss. Ah, okay. We don't, there are bits, we, we need to read this in context. Um, a holy kiss, some people call it a sign of peace. We could call it a handshake, a hug, a smile. It is, a, it is their way of saying holy kiss meant greet each other honestly, openly, with no fear. No fears. No fears among us. Take a look at what Alexander Campbell said and ask yourself if many ministers would not get fired for saying this. And yet five years before he came to this spot, he wrote all the good and virtuous in all sects belong to Jesus Christ. And if I belong to him, they are my brethren. That's how we started. I would submit to you that's where God and First Thessalonians is calling us back. Open arms. No rocks in our hands. I'm going to ask you to stand as I, uh, Mark, if you bring your group back up, please. And I've asked for no slide to be presented because I would like for you to hear it as they had to hear it read to them Paul's they would, they would have assumed final instructions to them they didn't know another book was coming so listen to verses 12 through 24 of Thessalonians 5 this is what Christianity looks like now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with what, each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Let the church say, Amen.